Last week, we were looking at the Gospel of John in John chapter 17 and the high priestly prayer of our Lord, and I'd invite you to take your Bibles and uh, turn there with me now. We, we looked at verses 1 to 5 as Jesus is preparing himself to make atonement for the sins of his people by setting his heart on the glory of God. And we just sang that in that beautiful hymn, uh, Born to Deliver Your People. And this is why Christ has, has come. And we saw last week as well that the glory of God is integrally bound up with the benefit of all that the Father has given him. If those the Father has given to the Son do not receive eternal life, the eternal life that Jesus has the authority to give, then the glory of Jesus and the glory of the Father actually proves to be no glory at all. I don't know if you've ever considered that. If Jesus fails to deliver those people for whom he came to die, then God has no glory at all. It's no surprise then that our Lord, in this prayer, as he's preparing himself to go to the cross, as our high priest, he turns his attention to doing one of the things he came to do, which is to intercede on behalf of of his disciples. He is, after all, our appointed high priest who sent to bring us into the very presence of God. This morning, beloved, as we gather together here as God's people, Christ is present with us and among us. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is present among us. God the Father is present with us by his Spirit as well. God is here in this place with his word, in his people. He's dwelling with us. But Christ also came, beloved, so that he might bring us into the throne room of God, into the presence of the living God in heaven. He came to deliver us, and now he is interceding for us, and he will always be interceding for us. But he desires us to be where he is. And if we are to enter into glory, into that rest that he has promised us, we need his help. We need his strength. We need his grace. We need his mercy. We need his forgiveness. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to stand as our mediator between us who are sinners and a holy God. Without Christ standing in our place, we have no glory or no hope to look forward to. And so Christ has come to do that. And so what he does here now in verses 6 to 19 he begins to now intercede and pray for his disciples. And specifically, these verses 6 to 19, 
he is specifically praying for his apostles, those whom he has chosen out of the world to be with him. But that doesn't mean that these words don't also apply to us. But he is also going to specifically pray for us, and we'll see this next week in verses 20 to the end of the prayer in chapter 17. He will pray for those who are to come and believe, which is us as a church. And so let us hear uh, the Lord Jesus praying now as he prepares himself to come and offer himself as a sacrifice on behalf of us and then also see and hear from God's word how the Lord Jesus prays for us. John chapter 17, verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Let us read and hear God's word, beloved. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the, word is hate, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also that those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Thus concludes the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we, we come before you this morning as those people have, who have been redeemed by the precious blood of your Son. We know, O oh God, that we pray and we speak with lisping tongues and weak minds and sinful hearts. We come into your throne room of grace knowing that we are completely unworthy of being there based upon our own merit. We know that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, that if we should even enter into your presence, that we would in a moment be undone like Isaiah was. We thank you so much for the gift of your son who gives us access into your throne room, who even teaches us here in this very passage how to address you as Holy Father. As our God who is set apart from us, a God who is pure in every way and undefiled, full of glory and majesty and truth, full of all of those things that have kept us away from your presence because of our sin. Lord Jesus, we thank you for interceding for us. We thank you for praying for us and for making atonement for our sins and then seeking our good by praying to the Father on our behalf. We thank you even this morning that our prayers are, are heard because of you because you have given us of your spirit and because the spirit dwells in us and he reminds us of these truths and he brings your word into to our hearts, we can pray and offer you praise because you have given us your spirit and you are also interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for enduring with, with our sin. Thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us. Thank you for carrying us through all of our weakness and our failures and our frailties. We pray, Lord, that as we look at your word this morning, we know that it is deep and we know that the truth is so rich in this passage as we hear you commune with the Father. 
We just pray that you would help us to understand whatever parts that we can for our good, for your glory, for the benefit of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was thinking about this particular section of scripture, the words that there's a lot of deep things in this passage of scripture, but the the thing that jumped out at me was the very beginning of this section in verse 6 when he prays for his disciples. And it's the phrase, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. And the reason that stood out to me is because as we've been going through the Gospel of John, this is what the Gospel of John has been about. It's been about the revealing of the Son of God, the Messiah, to the people. And I thought about all the ways that Jesus manifested the name of God to the people. And I started thinking back to the time we went through as a church, the Ten Commandments. We, we did that in the Sunday school hour. I'm not sure if we did that in the morning hour. But then I started to think about the, the idea of what's in a name. In uh, many cultures, modern or ancient, a name is a verbal symbol for a person or a thing. So the more valuable the person or the thing being named, the greater care that we tend to take in naming that. So I can remember, for instance, and you may remember when I shared this in the Sunday school class, but I can remember thinking about what to name our children. It was important. It mattered because it would go with them through their entire life. And so we took our time, Nancy and I would think about the names of our children and we would weigh our options and we considered all of our reasons and, and we finally came upon their, their names that we thought would be good and fitting for them to go through. And then I can remember when our kids are growing up and they're getting older and they decided to, uh, we never were a family that had animals and cats and dogs and things, but we did try goldfish. Um, <laughs> we tried goldfish and chickens. We got, we had chickens. So we got these goldfish and my kids were really little and they wanted to name their goldfish. And so there were like three of them, I think, or four. And we let them name the goldfish, and it took about 30 seconds. And one they named Balloony because he was a fat fish. One they named Red-Eye Jedi because of his red eyes. And one they named Al, for short for albino, because he was a very white, a very white fish. And so all of these names that he gave, they gave to them were because there were these certain characteristics about those fish that stood out to them. And so they saw those, and they immediately thought, I'm going to name these fish by these characteristics. And so whether it is, whatever it is we want to convey about a person or a thing, there's something about the name that we give to them that we hope is going to capture, it's going to capture that. Now, that's as far as we can take naming things, right? Because in the end, they're ultimately going, whether it's the fish or even us, whatever name you received, 
at the end of the day, what is going to ultimately define you is not your name, is it? But what's ultimately going to define you is your character and your, your person and character and life. That's ultimately how each of us are going to be defined. It doesn't, you can find someone named Roman that is much more uh, just righteous and walking with the Lord and faithful than, than me, and you can find a Roman in the world that is much more horrible and horrific in, in terms of their moral character than me. It's not, it's not, about, a, it's not about a name. What's going to define you is not your name, but what's going to define you is your character and your, your life as people look at you. And at a certain point, the people in your sphere of influence, whether large or small, are going to come to know you in a certain way. And whether it's right or wrong, though your name does carry with it a certain reputation for some people. People know you, they know me, they know our name, and your name given to you carries with it a reputation. How do we, we know this to be the case for a lot of reasons, but if I said to you, when I say Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong, what comes to your mind? Don't, an <laughs> don't answer. What do you think about? And you can add a lot of names in this list, but those are the ones. If I say to you, Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr., what comes to your, to your mind? Probably not the same. Probably not the same thing. When the Bible... Whatever, whatever your thoughts were about those names, the sound of them, you can see that the mere mention of their names was followed by some kind of reputation or fame or power or honor or something, right? Names carry a weight. When the Bible speaks about God's name, it stands for far more than a reference to the sound of that name. It includes God's person, his attributes, his words, all that he is. Yahweh's name is the very essence of who God is. God's name is that by which he is called. It is that by which he is made known to us. It is that by which his nature and his perfections are revealed to us in all of their glory and splendor. There is an extremely large list in the scriptures that talk about what the name of God actually means. One of the things that the name of God means is, it, like I said, it encompasses his whole person. So Yahweh and his name are interchangeable in the scriptures 
with his person. So Isaiah 30 verse 27 says, for example, Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. Deuteronomy 28, 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. So when, when the scriptures talk about the name of God, it is, they are talking about the very person of God. His name stands for that. Yahweh stands for God, the very person and being of, of God. His name also encompasses his attributes. So Yahweh's name is synonymous with his attributes. It encompasses all that he has revealed about himself. His name encompasses his power, his love, his justice, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his faithfulness, his justice, his wrath, his, all of his attributes. His name encompasses all of those things. And you also see this in the scriptures. Let me just read Exodus 35, 34, verses 5 to 7. God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments again after Moses broke the first tablets. And God descended in the cloud and stood with them there, and he's, he's going to pass before him. Moses wants to see his glory, and the Lord says, about his name and his glory. It says, the Lord, the Lord, that's his name. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. How's that for a name? This is the name of God. The name of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The name of God, faithfulness. The name of God, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. The name of God visiting the iniquity on sinners. All of his attributes. The name of God also in the scriptures is equivalent to the word of God. So Yahweh's name includes his word, which means that when he speaks his word, it is the equivalent of God's name. It is just as sure and perfect as God himself is. His name goes with his word. I don't kind of, how do you kind of put that? So I always tell my kids like this when they were growing up. I said, in life, you have a certain, you have a certain amount of integrity. So if you think about a cup and it fills up and the cup is full to the brim with integrity, the integrity of your word, right? Like to, to be considered honest or to be considered trustworthy, right? And the more that you, the more that you 
lie or you don't keep your word, the, the more that you show yourself to be one who lacks integrity and, and honesty, the more that that cup spills out. And the more that you lose out of that cup, the less the integrity that you have when people look at you and they hear your word, they will begin to equate you with one who is not so faithful to, to your word. And all of us, to a certain extent, lose integrity over life. And when you lose that integrity, it's very hard to get that integrity back. It's very hard for people to begin to trust you again with your word because you lose your name and the way that you've lived, you've lost that integrity. And so it's important, even for you kids growing up, it's important to remember that you must hold to your word and you must be honest and faithful because you want people to know you as one who is trustworthy. And we... As God's children, as we grow up, we want to reflect that because we're carrying the name of God with us. So when we think about God's name, the reason we can say, God can say, my name is the same as my word is because God is full and overflowing with integrity and honesty and truth. Every word that God speaks is a word that he speaks that is true and honest and faithful. It will never change. God's name is his word. This is why Jesus in this chapter, starting in verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept what? your word. Jesus manifested the very word of God to these people. Verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So when Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Jesus is saying, I have revealed the very essence of God to them. I have revealed to the world and to these disciples my person, my attributes, and my word. And so for anyone to savingly know God, this is why the scripture says that to, say, to be saved and to savingly know God, there is no other name given under heaven among men by which you must be saved. Because Jesus is very God of very God. And he revealed himself to these men and to these disciples in all that he taught, in all that he said, in his very person. But I want you also to note here that the people Jesus made himself known to are people that already belong to the Father. This is, this is a super deep point Jesus is praying here. In other words, 
the Father gave them to Jesus to manifest his name to them, and they were the Father's past tense, not they became the Father's. Jesus came into the world to die for a specific people. Yes, he came and he laid down his life and demonstrated his love for the world in that he laid down his life to die on the cross. But that giving of Jesus as high priest to make atonement for the sins, did Jesus make atonement for the sins of all the world? Is the sin of all the world paid for by the blood of Jesus such that the whole world will be saved? This, not at all. This is the lie that people profess. Jesus came and he laid down his life to make atonement for those that the Father gave him out of the world. That's what Jesus prays here. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were before he manifested his name to them, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Because they belong to Jesus, because they were given to Jesus, Jesus came, and when he manifested himself in the world, who is it that recognized the very name that he came and represented? The people that recognized him for the name that he came to bear are the people that God has chosen and predestined and elected from before the foundation of the world. This is why they came to see Jesus for who he is. You see, in Jesus's theology, if you want to call it that, in, in his mindset, as he's thinking about the world, Jesus understands better than we do that God must always be the one who takes the initiative with us. God took the initiative when he chose Abraham and his seed. God took the initiative when he manifested himself to Moses. Because God is holy and we are unholy, because God is sacred and we are profane, any relationship with God must be initiated by God himself. And Jesus knows that we are sinners. And so Jesus comes into the world to manifest his name to those whom the Father has given him. This is why when he came to Moses in chapter 3, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see the burning bush, you remember that? And God called out of him to the burning, from the burning bush. He says, Moses, Moses. Moses sees a burning bush and he says, here I am. Then the Lord said to Moses, who's now seeing the burning bush, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And Moses said, and, and God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Who took the initiative to come to Moses? God took the initiative. Did Moses seek out God? Moses didn't go and seek for God, but God came and manifested himself to Moses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, how do you know that you are one of those to whom Jesus has manifested the name of God? How did he know this truth about these disciples? It is because when they saw and heard the name of Jesus and all that he proclaimed, what did they do? They believed. They believed. You know that you belong to God because you believe the gospel. Because you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you have not yet exercised that faith in Christ, Jesus Christ calls you to believe in his name. Jesus calls you to repent of your sin and to turn to Christ, to see him for who he is, and like Moses, to throw yourself on the ground before God and to seek his mercy through the blood of Jesus Christ, because that is the only way that you can be saved. If you're waiting to know that you are the elect from before the foundation of the world, if you're wondering, I don't know if I'm chosen by God and therefore I don't know if I'm saved, and then ask yourself this question, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you believe in him, then you know that you are among those that Christ, how awesome is this? He has manifested himself to you and you have seen his glory and so you trust in him and give glory to his name. This is why Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, and then 9 to 10, he says to them, he writes, We know, brothers loved by God, that God has chosen you. Whoa, how do you know that, Paul? Because you have believed in the gospel. And verse 10 says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. You see what Paul's saying? We know that you're chosen by God because you believe the gospel and you repented of your sin and you turned to God from idols. And this is how Jesus is praying. Because you'll notice in verses 7 to 8, back in his prayer, he says, to them. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. 
And the reason he can say this about them is indicated by that four, that three-letter word F-O-R there in verse 8. The reason why, he says, is because I have given them the words that you gave me. And what did they do? Number one, they received them. They received his words. Number two, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. This is not only they received the knowledge, but it means that they assent to it as true. So you receive it, you hear it, but you also assent to it. You say, yes, I hear that, and yes, I actually believe that's true. And then thirdly, Jesus says, and they have believed that you sent me. What does that mean? That means they have entrusted themselves to him. That, that's kind of what in the Reformation they talked about the essence of faith. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. So if you are here hearing about Jesus this morning and your thought is, yeah, I remember receiving that information, and that's as far as it goes, you are not saved. If you're here this morning and you're hearing these words and you're saying, yes, I'm receiving that information like a robot, doo -doo 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 -doo, and it's going in, and then you say, yeah, I think that's true, you're not saved. If you're hearing it and you're receiving the information and you're saying, yeah, I think that's true, and then you are then saying, in light of that truth, oh, Lord, I need a Savior and I need someone to pay for the price of my sin, and I only see Jesus as the one who is capable of doing that, and you entrust yourself to Jesus as a Savior, then you are saved. Because then you are truly exercising faith in Jesus Christ as the one who can cover you for your sin. Short of that, there is no salvation outside of in anyone else. But beloved, when you have trusted and placed your faith in Christ, you've believed and assented and trusted him. Jesus then is praying for these disciples because though they may not have understood everything at this point about the Messiah, they didn't know he was going to die and rise again like we do. They didn't know that he was going to be a suffering servant and a high priest who's going to offer himself as the atoning sacrifice for their sin. They didn't know that yet either. But they had come to the deep conviction that Jesus was God's messenger and that Jesus had been sent by God and that all that Jesus taught them was God's truth. And then they would come to believe all these other truths about Jesus as they were revealed, those same truths that you and I right now are called to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And so our Lord prays for them specifically because they have faith in him. And what a humbling truth, beloved. I want you to know, our Lord wants us to know, rather, that when we trust in Christ as our Savior, and you have God as your advocate, and as your intercessor, 
and as your high priest, you have him for how long? Forever. Forever. You believe on Christ, he is forever your gracious mediator because since his glory and the glory of God's name is tied to their and your salvation, Christ will always live to intercede for them and for us. He loves us, beloved, as his very own. And so you see Jesus' heart for them here. He knows that very soon they are going to be deprived of his bodily presence. He guarded them, he strengthened them, he kept them from evil, but the time had come for Jesus to leave this world and to go back into his glory, back into the Holy of Holies, and here's what he prays. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Why? For they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Do you see how Jesus, he's thinking about them and and the redemption? This is all praying for his disciples because he loves them. And then he prays, And this will go much quicker for two things here. Verse 11, the second half of verse 11 and verse 6 to verse 16. The first thing he prays for is that the Father will guard them by his protection. He commits them into the Father's hand knowing that they will be loved and cared for in the same manner that he loved and cared for them while he was bodily with them. What a comfort. We may labor under all kinds of trials in the world. Just know that Jesus keeps his eyes on you. Jesus sees you. He knows you. He's keeping his eyes on you. He gives you help in time of need, and he gives you relief from your distress. And when the disciples are deprived of Christ's bodily presence, do they suffer any loss? None. Because Christ has prayed for them, the Father loves them, and the Spirit has come to dwell in them. And so Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's saying, in other words, keep them faithful. Keep them trusting in me. Keep them guarded in their faith. Keep them loyal to my name, God, that they might not fall away unto destruction. If Jesus doesn't pray for us like this, we're doomed. If Jesus didn't pray for you, beloved, you would die in your sin because you would not go on believing. Neither would I. 
But Christ prays for us. He intercedes for us. And he doesn't desire them to fall away. One did fall away, didn't he? Who? Judas? Jesus says in his prayer, I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except who? The son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We already covered this, but he prays that way because Judas was not one of his own. Judas belonged to the world, and Judas at the end of his life ultimately went to be with the world to whom he belonged. This is why Judas was lost, because God had foretold it, that there would be a traitor among them, and his name was Judas. But now, Jesus says, I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What a blessing, beloved. Be comforted, comforted, is that even a word? Comforted. Be joyful. Christ prays for you. He loves you. Lay it to heart, beloved. Though the world rage against God's children on account of the gospel, God will never forsake those who live to defend it. And so he prays for them. That is, I mean, this is something Jesus spoke about in John 6 and John 10. Listen to these verses. This is how secure you are. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. See, right in here he's praying according to God's will. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is just praying here in accordance with the will of the Father. You will never be lost. And then John 10, 27 to 30 my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch him out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are what? Are one. That is so awesome. Nobody can take them away from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's died for them. He's purchased them. He loves them. He secures them, and he secures us, and he is praying for them. Guard them, Father, in my name. It's a done deal. Second thing, he prays for them. He knows they need to be guarded because there's an evil one, a devil, who goes around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. So he knows he needs to pray for them, and he does. But the second thing he prays here, the second petition, and we'll close with this one, is he prays for their sanctification by the truth. Guard them, sanctify them, verses 17 to 19. He says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. The word sanctify is derived from the word group which revolves around the word holy. So when it comes to God... 
God is holy because God is set apart from this world and its sin. Is that, you understand that, right? To think of God as holy, you think of God as being set apart from the world and being set apart from the world's sin. So God is transcendent, he's pure, he's undefiled, he's distinct from his creation. This is why the angels say, holy, holy, holy. Just other and transcendent. And so for someone then, you and me, to be sanctified is for us to be set apart unto God for his purposes alone. This is what it means to be sanctified. So Jesus regarding him, being sanctified about Jesus, regarding himself, regarding the gospel, regarding his instruction that has been revealed to them and that they have come to believe God, Jesus is praying that they will be set apart, that they will be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. That they would be set apart by God's word, by the truth, and by the truth of it. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the word of God incarnate, set them apart, Father, unto that truth, and sanctify them by it. Make them pure and holy by it. Jesus says this is why he consecrates himself. This is why he goes to the cross, to die for your sin, but also to set you apart unto himself. So, so this, this truth that Jesus sends them into the world with, the great commission, if you will, Matthew 28, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus is praying here for them. Sanctify them by that truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Set apart in the truth. What does that mean for you and me? And just in closing here. thought about the world we're living in. To be sanctified in the truth, it means to preach the gospel. It does. It means to proclaim Christ to sinners and to call them to repentance. And we are to be set apart unto that truth, that gospel truth. We are to be set apart unto it in our own lives so that we speak the gospel to ourselves, so that we submit to God's word, that we are made holy by God's word. We're to call others to repentance. We're set apart by it. But then I started thinking, it also applies if we are to be salt and light in the world and we are to be sanctified by the truth, it also means that we need to stand firm on all of God's truth. All of it. Now, the reason I say that is because we are living in a world that is sacrificing not only the gospel truth, but turning truth upside down in everything. And we as God's people ought not to be living, like there was one title of a book I read that says, Live Not By Lies. 
We ought not to be living as Christians in the world by lies. All truth is God's truth. And when it comes to humanity, when it comes to the child in the womb, when it comes to the difference between male and female, when it comes to marriage between a man and a woman exclusively, not a man and a man and not a woman and a woman, when it comes to those truths, we ought to be a people that are sanctified by the truth. That means we think according to the truth. We live according to the truth, and we proclaim a gospel according to the truth. We do not compromise as God's people on the truth, even if that means we suffer for the cause of Christ for standing for the truth, we stand with Christ. We do not stand with the world. We do not compromise on the truth in order to grow a following or to grow a church or to be liked by your neighbors. That's probably the biggest temptation. Don't compromise the truth to be liked by your neighbors because they will like you straight into hell, but Jesus will love you into the glory of eternal heaven by the truth. This is what Jesus is praying for these disciples, to be guarded and to be sanctified by the truth because he knows they're going into a world that what? That hates them. Why does the world hate them? Because it hated Jesus Christ and crucified him on a cross. Beloved, if Jesus does not pray for you and I and for his disciples like this, we have no hope. But praise God, he does, and he has prayed this for us, and he will pray for us as well in the following verses. But praise God, he prayed like this for his disciples because it is because of them and God's work through them that we are here this morning celebrating the same gospel message, and we get to celebrate that now at the Lord's table, which Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so I want to invite Rory and the um, deacons up and whoever may be helping to serve the Lord's table.